Welcome back to Lifegasm Book One, Marshall's Promise. I am, as you have probably gathered, releasing this book in podcast form, where every episode is a chapter. So if you're just tuning in, I highly encourage you to start at the beginning and listen through chronologically. I promise everything will make much more sense if you do. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get this show on the road. Lifegasm Book One, Marshall's Promise. Chapter Four, The Goddess Chakra. Most people are driven by what they think they should do, what other people have said they should do, and what they've carried in their mind for a long time they should do. But the most important question you can ask yourself is, what do I really want? Oprah Winfrey on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. At the Outlaw Saloon, which I patronized exclusively when my friend Maud was tending bar, I dropped some coins in the jukebox and put on Harry Nilsson's Coconut Song. You know who I want as a lover? I asked Maud. Mmm, a geriatric racist? She guessed, eyeing the regulars clustered at the end of the bar. Nope, I said. Well, then what are you doing here? She quipped. I'm going to manifest a fireman, I said. Sure, okay, she said and walked away, doing her job and doing it well. Later that night, or was it the next morning, I found myself lying naked and comfortable next to a beautiful Adonis of a man who happened to be a wildland firefighter. Manifestation is real. He was a friend of Maud's, and as soon as she'd introduced us earlier that night, I knew I wanted to be naked with him. I know you have two kids and all that, said Adonis, who was real. But if you, if what you're telling me is true... I pride myself on speaking truth, I interjected. Well, okay then, I know you're married for a long time and you have two kids, but I'm your second lover ever? That means in a strange way, you're the closest I'll ever come to sleeping with a virgin. We laughed together, still naked and still comfortable. Adonis had apparently not been dissuaded by my extremely short list of previous lovers, and we'd been pleasing each other into the wee hours of the morning. How astonishing the body's possibilities! How thrilling it was to know I hadn't promised anyone I wouldn't share and explore such gratification. So there I was, 35-year-old single woman who had been introduced to the world of sexual exploration as of 12 hours ago. I had a lot of catching up to do. I traced my finger down Adonis's taut, smooth chest finally registering the message my body had been desperately trying to send me for a while. Sexual needs are real, and we are not wrong or bad or dirty to have them. It is truly stupefying to become aware of how much we learn without knowing we've learned it. I figured this out firsthand when I was living in India. I vividly remember an instance at a train station where one fellow was leaning against a wall with his knee bent, foot pressed on the wall behind him. A second fellow was straddling the other's bent knee, gyrating his groin back and forth against his friend's thigh. Keep in mind, this is in the middle of the day with throngs of people all around, not some hidden midnight affair. When I recounted the encounter to my Indian employer and mentioned how impressed I was with his country's acceptance of homosexuality, he guffawed. Oh, Evie, they aren't gay. (laughs) India is not progressive in that way. My jaw dropped. In the social language I'd been taught, 
one man gyrating on another's groin could only mean that the two were lovers. That's when I realized how much I'd learned without being aware that I'd learned it. Now that I was rebuilding my worldview from the ground up, I began to recognize how monogamy had been taught to me as sacrosanct, natural, and correct. Culturally, it's simply the soup we're swimming in. We can agree on this, yes? I'm not telling you to stop being monogamous. I would never. I'm simply trying to shine a light on one of those things that most of us have learned without being aware we've learned it. The language we use for monogamy is good. Faithful. Loyal. True. The language we use for non-monogamy is bad. Cheating. Philandering. Adulterous. We learn that finding your life partner, settling down, and never fucking anyone ever again is what we are supposed to do if we want to be happy. And we believe it. And we try it. And we defend it. But if I gathered a thousand of you in a room and asked you to raise your hand if you've ever, quote, cheated or, quote, been cheated on, my estimate is that nearly 100% of the hands would be in the air. So maybe it's time to simply admit to ourselves that something is out of alignment. As I lay there with Adonis, I flirted with the idea of keeping a collection of lovers. I wasn't fully committed to non-monogamy, not yet anyway, but I was hungry to try as many new flavors and textures as humanly possible. I wanted to be a foodie, but with sex. A few days after I shagged Adonis, I told my half-brother from New York about my intention to start a collection of lovers. He was appalled. Is that really what you want to do? He stammered. Whore it up? That's what he said. Whore it up. Now it was my turn to be appalled. Whoring it up made it sound like some sinister transaction. But I wasn't doing anything with my body that I didn't want to do. I was consensually, joyfully sharing my body with partners who consensually, joyfully shared theirs. I was absolutely unashamed, and I wouldn't let my brother or anyone else push their culturally conditioned, pleasure-phobic attitudes on me. Adonis and I began an invigorating, weeks-long round of intelligent, impassioned texting. During that time, he shuttled around the Pacific Northwest as his fire duties demanded. The more he expressed himself in writing, the more he proved to be rather witty and eloquent— I hadn't noticed how smart he was when we were lost in physical bliss. Honestly, the night Maud had introduced us, I considered him to be something of a decorative dum-dum. But now his intelligence and use of polysyllabic words were turning me on. This was how I learned I was sapiosexual. After what felt like an eternity of progressively smarter and sexier messages— I stole away for a long weekend to visit Adonis at his campground six hours away. Six hours was a long time in the car, especially driving head-on into the thickening smoke of whatever fire he and his team were trying to put out. But I could warp time like it was yarn, and my goddess chakra practically beelined toward the passionate ecstasy she anticipated. I arrived early, waited for Adonis to get off duty, accompanied him to an expensive restaurant where we split the check— then joined him in his tent to have a roll in the hay. And the sex was, drum roll please, perfectly fine. It wasn't terrible, and it wasn't exceptional. 
The next morning, once my general and specific frustrations had quieted, I was able to gather my thoughts and organize the lessons. 1. Adonis was more eloquent in writing than he was in person. 2. Amazing sex wasn't a guarantee, even with a partner you've had amazing sex with. Hmm, well, that's not gonna work for me on the daily, I thought. But I'm not gonna reject this guy outright just because I don't want to spend every day with him. Behold, the marvel of the lover's collection. Adonis would be my French onion soup. Good when it was good, and best only occasionally. I was willing to let love take the shape it wanted in every relationship, including this one. Because yes, my dears, I loved Adonis, and yes, we were in a relationship. Do you know why? Because I love all people. I love the sick and the healthy, the rich and the poor, the annoying and the socially graceful. I love people who are perpetrators of heinous crimes, though they're the hardest. And I love people who are victims of heinous crimes. Often, these boundaries are more overlapping than you might imagine. And of course, I love you, dear reader. I love all people because all we are is love, and the same love at that. If you were to use American pop culture as a guide for how love works, you may think it takes a long time to love someone and that loving them any sooner is a frightening and aggressive gesture which proves your insanity. I think it's hilarious that people find love frightening. If I had to name some things that scared me, I'd probably say resource hoarding, genocide, systemic racism, and physical, sexual, or emotional crimes against children. Perhaps it's not love that people fear, but the oft-associated neediness, clinginess, commitment, and monogamy? If so, we are hearing things that haven't been said and might want to reevaluate what we think love means. As for being in a relationship with Adonis— The truth is we are in a relationship with all people we relate to. Baristas, cousins, professors, the folks at the post office, everyone. The definitions and parameters of every relationship are different, of course, but that doesn't change the fact that relationship is not an inherently romantic term. Adonis presented yet another opportunity, as all human relationships do, to practice letting love take the shape it wanted. So that's what I did. Another notable, albeit brief, addition to my collection of lovers was a man by the name of Mr. Alpine. Mr. Alpine had been a Legrander for years, but now lived in an outdoorsy community a few hours away. He and I had always had a flirty vibe, even during my married years, but he and many women had also had a flirty vibe. In our community, he was known as a man whore and I use that term affectionately. Mr. Alpine texted me one night to let me know that he'd read about my separation from William online. So maybe now's our chance, he teased. I told him I was game, and he invited me to meet up that very night. Who better than a lover of many women to add to my collection, I thought. Surely he'll teach me some tricks in the sack. I was positive we would have dreamy fireworks sex and we would remain flirty friends who would call each other whenever our nether regions felt hungry. I was, how shall I say this delicately, wrong. 
Give me four hours, I wrote, knowing he was a three-hour drive away. It was worth it to me at the time to incur the energetic cost of travel. This wouldn't be the case for long, but to all things a season. Three hours was less than six, I figured, and hadn't I driven that far to see Adonis at his fire camp? Legrand was wonderful in uncountable ways, to be sure, but it was not permanently replete with available men. Want sex, will travel, I thought as I gassed up and hit the road. I met up with Mr. Alpine at a bar where we flirted and danced. I leaned in to kiss him, but he turned away. I don't even kiss my girlfriends in public, he said. You think I'd do that for you? Well, this was a head-scratcher. I had been in the process of deciding where my threshold lay for public displays of affection, but I hadn't yet landed on a resolution. William had never been particularly handsy, and I always found it somewhat dispiriting. A willingness to kiss and caress in public was something I craved in my new lovers. If a man couldn't keep his paws off of me in the bedroom, I reasoned, why should the arbitrary placement of architectural features, such as walls, change the chemistry of his attraction? And if he couldn't keep his paws off me in the bedroom, why would I waste my time with the fucker? I had almost mentally listed willingness to show affection in public as a threshold need, which would have meant that Mr. Alpine's declaration would have been a deal-breaker. But I'd driven all this way. Surely I could get past his inclination toward privacy, even if he was being something of a dick about it? Hmm, said my deepest heart. Get some, said my goddess chakra. I told Mr. Alpine I wanted to do something kinky in public, and he asked me to define my terms. Kinky can mean a lot of things, he chided. I don't want anyone to actually see us, I explained, but I want to feel the thrill of the risk of being seen. So we left the bar and ventured into a poorly lit park. After creeping through the shadows, we came upon a sequestered picnic table. Perfect! A quick scan of the area indicated no signs of life, so we started fondling and messing around. My goddess chakra was surging. I felt like I was learning how to surf, and I was on the cusp of standing up on my first Mr. Alpine-shaped wave. It was steamy, and I confess that I may or may not have gratified him to completion. Eventually, we buttoned our pants, stumbled to our cars, and made our way back to his place. In the very dark hallway outside his basement bedroom, I strove to keep the erotic fire alit. But something had definitely shifted. He seemed only nominally interested. I wondered if I should have pulled back a notch at the park. He was obviously not as randy as I was anymore, which was his right, but which I felt let down by, which was my right. Even if he does feel satisfied, I figured... Isn't it good form to return the favor? I tried to take the lead to stir up the erotic energy. I hoisted myself atop the washing machine and pulled him close with my legs. I think you're pretty sexy, Mr. Alpine, I said, hoping this would act as a catalyst for getting him back in the mood. I expected him to say something charming and flirtatious like, you're not so bad yourself, or well, come and get me. He said neither of those things. Instead, he stepped back, walked toward the bathroom, and said, and I quote, I'm just living my life.
If I could do it again, my dears, this is where I would chortle and excuse myself to sleep elsewhere. Enough was enough. But I can't do it again, so I'll simply use the experience to inform future potential experiences where I do still have the power of agency. That night, I followed Mr. Alpine to his childishly unkempt room and tolerated the astoundingly unsatisfying sex that followed. Thank you, universe, for sending me a bona fide man whore to teach me the bona fide lesson that it's okay to end a sexual encounter at any point, no matter how far it's already gone. The funny thing is that I'd long been aware that no was my right— ever since I was in the second grade and an older boy at school had kissed me non-consensually. The day of the kiss, after my dad had picked me up and I had broken down and told him everything, he sat me down in the kitchen and said in his serious voice, This is your body. It is all yours. If anyone wants to do anything to your body that you don't want them to do, you get to say no. It doesn't matter what else happened, even if he bought you dinner. You get to say no, no matter what. Your body, your rules. Much to my humiliation, my dad made me practice saying the word no right there in the kitchen, over and over, at an increasingly louder volume. It was irksome to the seven-year-old me, and I didn't understand what he meant about buying me dinner, but the charm was wound. In the ensuing years, I was often sickened to hear my peers confess to feeling obligated to say yes when they really wanted to say no. Hadn't their dad ever taught them that it was their body, their rules? Ironically, I'd become such an expert in no, I hadn't taken much time to consider yes until my divorce. But now I was discovering that an experience didn't have to be just one or just the other— Consent had a shelf life and could be revoked at any time. The next morning, Mr. Alpine went about his routine as if he were alone in his room. I decided that this was exceptionally bad form, especially because we knew each other. We weren't just strangers having a one-night stand. And I made a mental note to treat all my lovers, even the sexual duds, with the same respect that I would show any house guest. I wondered if his own collection of lovers was so vast because nobody ever wanted to fuck him twice. Either way, I wasn't going to let his bad manners ruin my morning. Because this is part of our power, my friends. Others can act like dicks around us, but we don't have to mirror them, nor do we have to succumb to the mentality that the world is populated exclusively with dicks. We still get to choose who we want to be. I went upstairs made myself a cup of coffee, found a yoga mat, which I rolled out in front of the panoramic windows, and chose gratitude. My plan was to simply start my day properly with some cat-cow and caffeine, then to travel home with a clear head. But the universe had other plans. One of Mr. Alpine's roommates came out to find me on her yoga mat. Oh, I'm sorry, I I didn't know who to go to for permission. Here, here, you can have it back. I stepped off the mat and started to roll it up for her. Don't even worry about it, she said as she put a kettle on. It likes being loved. I get that, I replied, even as I put the mat away. I feel the same way about inanimate objects. Not to mention that the Western concept of ownership is way overrated, she added. Holy shit, I loved her already. I know I'm in your house, but 
Who are you? I asked. You're exactly right. Ms. Rumi and I jumped into conversation like we were doing simultaneous poolside cannonballs. We talked about bliss and bodies and boys. I'll be honest, she confessed. When I came out here and saw you, I thought you were just another one of Mr. Alpine's floozies. I'll be honest back at you, I replied. Up until meeting you, I felt like just another one of his floozies. I paused. I wanted to be honorable, but direct. But if you don't mind, I'd rather not talk about him. There are so many better things to spend my breath on. I hear you, she said, and changed the subject obligingly. Did you see all the food I have growing out there? She indicated her vegetable garden through the picture windows. Those veggies drink up sunlight and starlight, and now we get to eat them. We can go down and I can give you a tour if you'd like. I did like, and we made our way outside into the air of a new day through the cucumbers and cauliflower. Food is a verifiable miracle, I said, peeling back the prickly, oversized zucchini leaves to see how many fruiting bodies I might find underneath. Just ask anyone living on Mars. She laughed, then plucked a dripping ripe heirloom tomato, murmuring something about an omelet. You're welcome to join my husband and me for breakfast, she said. I'm sure you'll love him. I accepted the invitation, reflecting on the contrast between the predicted path of my day and the path I was actually walking. Ms. Rumi was clearly my people, and I trusted from what she said about her husband that he was my people, too. I spent the rest of the day with my new friends at their invitation. After breakfast, we hiked to a waterfall and swimming hole. I stripped down to my undies and jumped all the way into that shockingly chilly water. As I swam toward the surface, eager for a mouthful of sweet, precious air, I felt the power of the word reborn course through my whole body. I was a mermaid and a human and a goddess. I was alive. It was a miracle. Blessed be. You'd think the afternoon would have been a graceful time to head home, but it didn't feel right to go even then. I joined my new soul family for a community potluck and party, at their invitation, of course, where Mr. Alpine also happened to be in attendance. He pulled me aside to reprimand me about boundaries, as if I weren't a free agent on a free will planet. Excuse me, I told him. I'm not here as your guest or even your date. Carry on with whatever you were doing, but leave me out of it. Is this how he treated all the women he fucked? Poor chap. I wish he would have let me teach him some things about human connection and decency, but it wasn't my style to lead an involuntary follower. After the party, I stayed with Ms. Rumi in her guest room upstairs, almost directly on top of Mr. Alpine's bedroom. Moving on up in the world, my deepest heart teased. But look what life can be when you simply let it. I don't want to be your one and only, and I don't want you to be my one and only, I would later announce in some variation on all of my dating profiles. And I meant it. I didn't want to couple up with a person for any amount of time, be it one night or a thousand nights, who wasn't comfortable with the fact that my goddess chakra's appetite was diverse. Furthermore, and this is imperative, I didn't want my lovers or partners to feel like it was a betrayal to me when they sought pleasure with someone else. I wanted my life to be as full of pleasure as humanly possible, and I wanted the same thing for everyone else too, including my partners. After all, when we really care about a person, 
Don't we want all the best things in the world for them? One night, back in Legrand, I cast out a golden thread in the direction of an international lover. Shortly thereafter, at the outlaw, again, I met a quiet, long-lashed introvert from Eastern Europe. He was the first to give me two orgasms in a row, and when I announced this milestone, awestruck, he pulled his head out from the covers, raised his eyebrows mischievously, and asked, Shall we make it three? (laughs) Another night, I craved a lover who could pick me up like I was a ragdoll, only to meet a fellow whose shoulders were roughly as broad as a refrigerator. Ask and you shall receive, my Jewish dad used to say. Over time, I met gentlemen on dating apps and through friends. The collection waxed and waned. And through it all, I continuously listened to that deep, divine, intuitive voice within me, steering me this direction or that. In those early months, the learning curve was steep. I learned that sexual needs represent an appetite that is just as legitimate, important, and unattached to shame as hunger. I learned that men weren't the sex machines I'd falsely been conditioned to believe they were. As it turns out, men are people too. I learned that meeting new lovers and checking the multi-layered categories of compatibility takes a lot of energy, that is, cost, and sometimes my body wasn't so hungry as to warrant all that work. I learned that you can be the ripest, juiciest peach in the bowl, but there will always be some people who just don't like peaches. I wrote an essay titled, Five Things I Learned About Sex at Age 35, and posted it on my blog, triggering my mom to lose her shit. I can't believe you did that, she bemoaned. What if grandpa saw? I didn't understand her argument. What if my grandfather, who had four children, somehow found his way onto the internet and discovered that I, mother of two, was a sexually active adult human being? And? This is her work, my deepest heart reminded me. This is not your knot to untangle. I didn't argue with my mom about it, but I didn't take the blog down either. The subterranean schism between my mom and I was growing wider by the minute, even if we managed the small talk check-in on occasion. Onward and upward. I clearly had a great deal of unlearning to do in the realms of mind, body, and spirit, and I was ready and willing to receive whatever lessons dropped into my lap next. <laughs>